Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, Journalism, its history and the future of news with guest Tom Evelyn, and more, but we'll get to that in a moment. Today, Tom describes himself as an independent journalist, writer, and photographer based in Lexington. He was a columnist for the Lexington Herald Leader from 2008 to 2019 and the managing editor from 1998 until 2008. Tom previously worked for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Associated Press. He was inducted into the Kentucky Journalism Hall of Fame in 2016. His photographs have appeared in Newsweek and Garden and Gun, Associated Press, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Lexington Herald-Leader, and other newspapers. And Tom is also, I'm proud to announce here, uh, let's hear the drum roll. A new member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Tom, it's uh, great to have you uh, with us in the office and before our Think Humanities podcast. Well, thanks, Bill. I'm glad to be here. You um, have uh, had an interesting career. Uh, we've known each other for some time. Uh, honestly, I, I didn't ever think uh, that we would see each other in this capacity. You you have even a new position at the Carnegie Center in Lexington. Yeah, I'm new. I'm the new literary arts liaison at the Carnegie Center, and we're uh, I'm working on some special projects to try to raise Lexington's profile and Kentucky's profile as really kind of the literary capital of mid-America because there are just so many great writers, not only of the past, but so many great writers of the present. Uh, Kentucky has always been a magnet for great writing and great writers, and uh, we just want to celebrate that and uh, become better known for it. And um, I would also say that I didn't think that some time ago that, that you, I'm so glad that you are a member of our Speakers Bureau. Um, I, I was curious when I read the uh, one uh, section of the blurb on our website, which is up now at kyhumanities.org, by the way. All of our Speakers Bureau members are there. Uh, there is a description of the talks that they can give to your civic group, your church, your book club, um, a variety of ways that you can uh, bring somebody into your home or, or workplace, um, was independent journalist. And uh, this is maybe the first time that you've, you've used independent journalist, other than being a, a nonpartisan or a non-prejudicial journalist, uh, which you don't usually introduce yourself as, but independent journalist because you just left the Herald-Leader this year. Well, that, I guess that what that really means is nobody's paying me a salary to write for them, <laughs> which is the first time that's been the case uh, to write or edit for them in 40 years. Uh, but, you know, I've been doing some freelance projects, uh, plan to write some books, uh, and this was just kind of a, you know, just I, I wasn't really ready to retire, but uh, it was a pretty good offer that McClatchy made and decided that, you know, maybe I'll try some new things. So one of the things is the Carnegie Center. Also plan to write some books. And, uh, and do some writing here and there. So how have the first, uh, what, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks of, uh, of independent journalist <laughs> or independent living outside of going to the workplace? Well, it's, How's been, that been? it's been fun. I, like I said, I've, I've been working at the Carnegie Center. I've enjoyed that. I've also been working on a really interesting project uh, called Our Breath It, which is uh, looking at kind of history and culture and uh, kind of new directions for Breathitt County, Kentucky. I, it was something I got uh, lured into because my grandmother was from hmm. Breathitt County. And uh, 
I'm a descendant of one of the earliest settlers there. Uh, so I've been involved in that. I've um, also been doing some uh, various freelance projects for people, both writing and historic research. Uh, still doing a lot of speaking, which is one of the reasons I signed up for your Speakers Bureau. Um, I have uh, been asked to give us several talks about kind of the Athens of the West period of Lexington uh, since I was uh, a contributor to a book called Bluegrass Renaissance that the University Press of Kentucky published in uh, 2012. But my daughter Molly and I uh, wrote a chapter about uh, Horace Holly and the rise and fall of Transylvania in the 1820s and really kind of what that said about the history of higher education in Kentucky. And so since uh, since doing that piece, I've been asked to, to speak a lot of that's a really interesting, I've always been a history nut and uh, uh, it's, I, I kind of always wanted to be a history professor until I got into journalism and figured that, you know, writing history in real time was pretty interesting, too. But uh, I've done some historical writing. And so I, I've done this speaking, uh, and also now, anytime I speak about anything, people want to know what's going on with the news business because of all those changes, and where, you know, where is my newspaper going, and what about fake news, and I'd given those speeches so many times, I figured, well, I might as well just sign up and give them for you. <laughs> well, that's great, and we're glad that you did. So let's, um, let's do talk about the news. Uh, you and I have had this discussion uh, many times before, um, and uh, you came to my Transylvania uh, class last year. I'm going to uh, let you know that I'm going to ask you to come back again uh, in the fall. Um, Tom, I think it's one of the most interesting and frustrating uh, moments in journalism history. And I have conversations uh, often uh, about it because I'm sure you get the same thing. People want to know when you go into Starbucks, um, you're waiting for your coffee, what do you think about the latest? And um, not being in journalism uh, any longer on a, a daily or a weekly basis, it just seems to me like journalism is lost and trying to find its way in this new world of, uh, of fake news. Well, the biggest problem is economic, frankly. You know, if the, the Internet has created all of these wonderful tools for journalism, you know, when you think about it now, we used, used to, if you wanted to be a journalist, you had to work for a, a company that had millions of dollars for presses and could distribute papers to a large area, or you had to work for a company that had a TV or radio license, a lot of expensive equipment. Now all it takes to publish is a, a computer and an internet connection, and you can publish instantaneously all over the world on the internet. And uh, so these are you know wonderful tools, video and audio and podcasts and all these things. The problem is, is that the same internet that created all these tools uh, obliterated the traditional business model for media, and that was advertising, because media organizations really had a monopoly on advertising, and they don't have that anymore. So while you know the irony of, of newspapers like the Herald-Leader have, have actually had more readers than they've ever had when you can't print and online, they're rapidly moving to online, but they're not making any money at it. So without that revenue, you can't have journalists to actually do the work. So news staffs all over the country are shrinking. The only news organizations that are really doing pretty well are a few cable TV networks that have, um, have niches that they can still attract a lot of advertising, but as, as cable TV falls apart as a business model and, and everybody gets into streaming, you got to wonder how that's going to last. Uh, and the, the you know, three national newspapers, really, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal have pretty good business models by selling 
online subscriptions around the world. I think that last year the New York Times had something like $600 million worth of online subscription sales. But it doesn't work at anywhere else in the journalism food chain, and that's a big problem. So you're still seeing some wonderful journalism come out of places like the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, not seeing much good journalism come out of cable TV at all, but uh, you're, it's, it's, it's really challenging for news outlets in smaller markets and even large cities like Chicago and L.A. and Philadelphia. On the other hand, is it arguable, though, that there are more voices, more opinions, uh, more opportunities for everyone to stay abreast of uh, the news, in quotation marks, uh, isn't that a healthy uh, atmosphere for journalism to operate in? Uh, theoretically, yes. Um, as one of my bosses, Bill Kovitch, who used to be editor of the Journal Constitution and before that was the Washington bureau chief for the New York Times, he wrote in a wonderful book called The Elements of Journalism that, that journalists and editors used to be seen as gatekeepers. And the problem with that whole concept of gatekeepers, of deciding what the public should and shouldn't know about and what was true and what was baloney, was that somebody's taken down all the fences. So while there is plenty of information out there, a lot of it is fake or a lot of it is incredibly biased, a lot of it is commercial or political or everything but journalism. And what this has done is required uh, consumers, you know, readers, viewers, to be much smarter consumers and have to use critical thinking to, to try to decide for themselves what is true because there aren't editors kind of controlling what they see as true that that you know are verifying that so when you know for for a smart consumer yes this is a wonderful age for news for your average person who uh, tends to not do any verification or anything uh, it leads to a lot of uh, misinformation what do we do about that uh, uninformed uh, reader or listener or viewer and for that matter, uh, not that they're uninformed, uh, a younger population uh, that are either possibly in uh, high school at this moment or college or, or uh, shortly uh, after uh, graduation just don't really have an interest in the news. It's not that they don't have a, a source for news or that they're choosing Instagram over the New York Times, uh, I've been told that they just don't have uh, an interest in the immigration issue or what's going on uh, with the Mueller report or what's happening in Great Britain um, uh, with Brexit now. Uh, how, do, how do you suggest that journalism reach those people and create almost like a new niche audience, if you will, and the niche would be I don't, I don't really care about what's going on, therefore I don't participate. You know, I'm really, I don't know that I buy into the, the argument that younger people are any less interested in news than you and I were when we were that age, honestly. Uh, I think that um, the news situation is more confusing and confounding and frustrating, and I think it's very uh, likely that a, that, that readers of all ages are just saying, you know, to heck with this. I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. I'm just going to focus on my life. Uh, I think, you know, I know a lot of young people who are quite well informed and there are a lot of tools for that. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the best journalism mediums, honestly, I've seen in a long time is podcast. I've, I listen to the daily at the New York times, the, the post reports. I mean, there are just a lot of really good podcasts that help explain the news in depth in a way that, um, 
really is, is better and I think more effective than some of the news magazines used to be. So, you know, I think it's uh, a situation where journalists have to come up with new methods and new uh, formats that will attract all kinds of readers, whether it's young or old or distracted. Uh, you know, NPR does a lot of good work because a lot of people listen to the radio while they're in the car. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, I think it's just a constant thing of trying to figure out how to use these new tools in ways to reach people. Uh, but at the end of the day, still the challenging part is, so how are you going to finance that? If you uh, cannot make a lot of money in, in advertising or you're not a nonprofit like NPR with a big endowment, you know, wh- where is that money going to come from? And that's, that's the challenging part. What do you think the current uh, thoughts are in the journalism community um, about reporting everything, let's just say, that comes out of Washington, um, especially out of the White House, uh, that is determined to be untrue? And how, how does that help journalism that you're reporting information that you fact-checked and found to be untrue, yet you're, you're giving that platform to someone to reach millions of people? Well, I think uh, journalists, especially covering Washington, have become a lot better and a lot more aggressive about saying, the, you know, if the president said this and it's not true. Or, uh, you know, some have even called the president a liar when he is a liar. Uh, and I think that uh, you're seeing journalists kind of feeling more comfortable doing that because the president and other members of Congress and others have been a lot more bold about stating things that are not true. The whole, uh, you know, if you read... Uh, you know, today's news sites, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, they fact-checked, say, some of the questions from Democrats and Republicans who were questioning Robert, Robert Mueller, saying, you know, so what are their assertions were true, what were false. Uh, you know, it's still hard when you, for instance, um, a lot of the, the kind of the takeaway line yesterday from Trump was that, you know, the Mueller testimony was a disaster for Democrats. So you have that line, but not as much, not as many people will go kind of look into the analysis mm-hmm. and say, well, no, why was it a disaster? You know, why was it, you know, basically Mueller underscored illegal activities by the president? How is that a disaster? You know, Mueller was not telegenic, mm-hmm. but, but the facts were there. So uh, I think uh, at the end of the day, a lot of it is just going to have to come, come down to the idea that you know journalism is a discipline of verification and you're seeking the truth you're not seeking to present both sides that include false you're, falsehoods you're trying to say what is true how is it true what's the evidence for that and um, you know what are what are other arguments but at the end of the day what's true and what's not true can the media look beyond the daily onslaught of tweets that are vitriolic and hurtful in some people's uh, eyes um, that are one way or the other racist or not. I mean, they're out there. Uh, One makes uh, a determination of that. Can the media not cover that and still call themselves a journalism organization? No, I think you have to cover it. I mean, when the, when the president says anything, it's news. But at the same time, I think the media has an increasing responsibility with this president to say the president said this and it's it's incorrect. You know, the president said this, there's no evidence for that. And you are hearing that on a regular basis, which is something we never would have heard before, but you know, we've never had a president like this who was 
frankly, such a blatant liar. What's the future? That's a good question. If I had the answer for that, I'd be a very wealthy consultant in New York. But, you know, I think uh, it's going to be probably a combination. You know, media will have to adapt uh, like they've had to adapt in the last few years to new tools, new techniques, new approaches to trying to get to the truth, get to the bottom of, of things. But I think the biggest issue is that news consumers are going to have to become smarter and more savvy. You know, they're going to have to not just be cheering for their team, but look for news organizations that are presenting factual, reliable information. I thought it was really interesting in the questioning. There was a um, a Republican congressman questioning Mueller yesterday and and complaining because he had cited the New York Times and the Washington Post so much. And the implication was, you know, why not Fox News? Well, Fox News is not doing any journalism. Mm -hmm. You know, where, where Fox News was cited in the report was, various comments or interviews with people kind of speaking for Trump. But, you know, there hasn't been any, any hard-hitting journalism coming out of there. So I think that, that kind of speaks to the idea of that people have to know what good journalism mm-hmm. is. And I think journalists need to be better about educating, um, educating readers. There are some great organizations uh, that are trying to do this with young people. The best is probably the News Literacy Project, which was um, – the founding chairman was John Carroll, who uh, used to live in Lexington, and it was actually started by Alan Miller, one of his uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporters at the Baltimore Sun. And they've developed a certified curriculum that basically teach critical thinking skills and, and about, about media literacy you know, to help middle, middle school students and high school students really understand you know, how can you verify something you read on the internet or, or here on TV? And what are the kind of critical thinking skills that you need to analyze that? Because there aren't any gatekeepers anymore. You know, there aren't editors weeding out a lot of the garbage. Are citizens of the United States interested in this uh, also if they're not in high school, but they're 50 years old? Is it too late for them to discover techniques and ways to get through the clutter and get to the facts? Well, I don't think so, but it's, it just kind of takes a desire. You know, it, it kind of comes down to, um, to really taking on the responsibility for themselves to try to figure out what's going on and, and really have some, um, some introspection about what they think America should be. Uh, Tom Eblen is our um, member of our Speakers Bureau. Uh, Tom is a Kentuckian and uh, um, a a Lexington uh, person uh, who spent some time away from here um, and came back and uh, I think is glad about that. But he also participated in a Kentucky book by the University Press of Kentucky um, entitled uh, Bluegrass Renaissance, the History and Culture of Central Kentucky, 1792, our birth date to 1852. So Tom, you mentioned uh, that uh, a lot went on then in the early 1800s, reading from the blurb on our website, uh, was uh, the most important city in what was then Western America. So tell me about uh, what you've discovered about that golden age in central Kentucky and some of the fascinating uh, individuals that came out of that era. Well, you know, Lexington was was kind of... um a real central location for people who were going west because the the land was so rich. It was such a beautiful area, a rich agriculture area, and it very quickly also developed as a trade and commercial center because in the first western expansion, the only way to move goods was either down the Ohio River where you would unload them at 
Maysville, take them down the, the, the road to Lexington, and uh, or if you were going down to New Orleans, you would go all the way down the river on a flat boat and then ride or walk back. So Lexington was a big commercial center until the invention, of, really, of the steamboat. And so between about 1800 or the late 1790s and about... 1814. Lexington was really the most important city in the region uh, because right after the War of you know, Kentucky was very central to the War of 1812, not only in men, but in, in most of the iron for cannons, most of the gunpowder came from here. Uh, and after the War of 1812, you had a, a pretty strong economy and then the bottom fell out. And when the bottom fell out, you had an economic issue about the same time the steamboat is coming and, and a lot of the business moves from Lexington to Louisville and Cincinnati, and Lexington kind of diminishes as an economic power. But really for that kind of roughly 20 years, uh, Lexington was not only, it was very wealthy because of the agriculture, because of the trade, but there was also an interest in uh, among many citizens um, in, in arts and culture and, and education. Uh, of course, Henry Clay is a very well-known figure who came here in the late 1700s, uh, was a, a local leader. But less well-known is probably John Bradford, who started the first newspaper uh, west of the Alleghenies. He was Kentucky's first book publisher. He was uh, a big promoter. of. He was a, a founder of the, the what became the Lexington Public Library, one of the oldest libraries in, uh, you know, east of the East Coast, or west of the East Coast. And uh, he was also... Um, uh, one of the key people in trying to make Transylvania University into, into the great university of the West. He was a, a trustee and chairman of Transylvania for about 30 years. And he was, he was very central in the, in the chapter that I wrote about, about trying to bring in uh, a really a nationally prominent person, educator, who could transform Transylvania from a real third-rate little school to, for training Presbyterian ministers into... Uh, one of the nation's great universities, which remarkably he did in the span of about four or five years, and um, and it was just such a great, such a great story. But it because not only the success, uh, you know, Transylvania the the enrollment went from you know a few dozen to almost five hundred during Holly's tenure. Uh, but then he was kind of undone by a lot of things. He was uh, kind of an arrogant guy, so he, he wasn't good at making friends. The, a lot of conservative religious people didn't like him because he was a Unitarian. He was a Presbyterian turned Unitarian. And the, uh, it's funny, the, the, uh, the Presbyterians at that time were very, they were, wanted to be very controlling. They were very conservative. It's funny, the Baptists in a lot of ways were more liberal than the Presbyterians then because the Baptists believed in a separation of church and state. That's hard to believe. It is because, <laughs> but the, the Baptists believed in a separation of church and state because of the persecution they had endured in Virginia during the colonial period mm-hmm. when the Church of England, you know, the Anglican Church was the recognized church. So the Presbyterians were a pretty small group in Kentucky, but they were very influential and wanted to control everything, including what was taught at Transylvania. And you had people like, uh, John Bradford and Henry Clay and Robert Wycliffe and some others who basically had to wrest control of the university in, in order to hire this minister from Boston to to kind of create a great university. And, and for this brief period, Governor Slaughter was a big supporter of education. He put state money behind uh, Transylvania. They restarted the law school, restarted the medical school. Uh, Transylvania, during this period and shortly after, until the medical school pretty much disbanded and moved to Louisville in the 1830s. Why created, did that happen? 
Well, for one thing, is once Holly left, uh, the state support for education, uh, this, one of the reasons Holly left was the governor cut a lot of the funding. Uh, there was not much leadership. Uh, and a lot of the, um, the, uh, the doctors could see there wasn't a lot of support. And, and oddly enough, a, a big argument why a lot of them wanted to move the medical school to Louisville was because there were, were the availability of more availability of cadavers, which they needed to, to teach students. It was, a, it was more of a, a growing and more of a transient community. Um, you know, that's a whole other story mm-hmm. is the whole uh, secret uh, dealing in bodies for medical studies in the 19th century. But uh, so really kind of Transylvania pretty much falls apart for decades after uh, Holly leaves. And, um, but during that brief time, it was recognized as one of the best universities. Thomas Jefferson um, famously uh, mentioned that uh, in, in a, when he was trying to organize the University of Virginia, he used Transylvania as a model and a lot of the innovations that, that Horace Holly had created uh, to design the University of Virginia. And he lamented that if Virginia politicians didn't fork over the money for uh, a, a university, that the young men of Virginia would either have to go to Harvard or Transylvania. <laughs> really? Um, what was the, describe for me the, the period leading up to the Civil War. And of course, your, uh, your expertise in your book uh, stops at 1852, but I know you can speak to uh, up uh, 10 more years or so. But what, what, was, what was going on in the early 1800s leading up to that period and the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the story, I'm just going to say ugly story of, uh, of slavery in, in central Kentucky, in Kentucky, in, in Lexington? Well, you know, when Kentucky was formed, there was actually a lot of discussion about whether it should be a slave state. And David Rice, who was an early, uh, was a Presbyterian minister who was an early uh, president of Transylvania, uh, fought against uh, slavery and and came fairly close uh, in some of the early constitutional conventions to have Kentucky be a not not a slave state, but uh, once he lost that, um, the the kind of pro slavery forces uh, became a lot stronger because a lot of the wealth in Central Kentucky, especially after kind of the commerce went to the river cities, was in agriculture mostly hemp. Hemp was a huge crop that required a lot of manual labor, and and really slavery was it was kind of ideally suited, much like cotton or rice, for a slave labor economy because, you know, it it, it was really hard, dirty work. Mm-hmm. Still is. It still is, but it's it's uh, it was worse then because mm-hmm. you didn't have any kind of you know mechanical devices. So. Um, so really once, you know, you know, after the 1820s, it, oddly enough, one of the big, um, one of the big, uh, impetuses for creating Transylvania as a great university was economic development. And it did a lot for Lexington's economy, uh, until the 1830s. But after the 1830s, when Transylvania has declined a lot, you don't have all those students, you don't have, uh, a lot of that, you don't have a lot of the commerce and basically you've got hemp, you've got horses and hemp. You know, hemp and hemp processing, a very slave-based, uh, you know, agriculture economy. So, um, really, Lexington kind of descended into a into a a community that, uh, without education, was pretty much a, a slaveocracy, and mm-hmm. and that uh, led to, you know, at at one point, 
right before the Civil War, about half of the population of Fayette County was African-American, mm. and most of them were enslaved. It's uh, Ironically, a lot of people don't realize there was actually a pretty sizable free black population in Lexington, and that was because they were many of the tradesmen, the bricklayers and, and other kind of uh, skilled trades that were very necessary. How had they been freed at that time? Did their skill set or their... How were they able to establish their freedom? Uh, different ways. Some of them were freed by owners. Many of them purchased their freedom. And that was kind of a really common um, situation where you had a very skilled, say, a brick, uh, a, a brick mason. Uh, and there's several examples of this, uh, you know, who they would uh, work, be able to work some on the side or their owner would work out a deal and they would eventually buy the freedom, uh, buy the freedom of their families. And many of those then ended up in the South Hill neighborhood of Lexington, kind of on South Mill, South Upper Street. A lot of those uh, historic houses along there were built by free African-Americans. And some of them, they were even built as their rental property, oddly enough. So you had some pretty prosperous, and, and they were tolerated, I think, by the white community because they needed those skills. Uh, there is a lot uh, more to talk about. You mentioned uh, statesmen, doctors, lawyers, architects, civil rights leaders, and artists. Uh, let's just choose one more to talk about. What, what, what artists uh, were you interested in, and have you looked at um, that was doing work at that time? Probably the, probably the best artist to ever come out of Kentucky was a portrait painter named Matthew Harris Jewett, mm-hmm. who was uh, the son of a Revolutionary War uh, hero, uh, Jack Jewett, who was referred to as the Paul Revere of the South. He, he rode through Charlottesville to warn uh, uh, Jefferson and others that the British were coming to capture them. He moved to, to what's now Woodford County, uh, and uh, Matthew Jewett was... Uh, he, he studied here, learned, learned art. Then he went and studied in Boston with Gilbert Stuart, who was you know, the most noted portrait painter of his age, uh, certainly in America, and, and one of the most famous portrait painters of all time. But, so Jewett studies with, uh, with Gilbert Stuart, comes back, and just through, for a remarkable short life, I mean, he, yeah. he only lived into his 30s, he, mm-hmm. he painted an amazing number of, of uh, portraits. And so... Um, uh, I, I actually recently wrote the afterword for a book. Um, Estelle Curtis Pennington has finished a uh, comprehensive biography and, and catalog of Jewett's work, which is really the, the most best one's ever done. I, I recently wrote the afterword for it, and it'll probably be published in the next you, year or so. A big, broad, general question about where you think Lexington finds itself today in the world well, Lexington has a lot of a lot of assets, but a lot of challenges. And I think the biggest challenge is kind of the lack of corporate headquarters, locally owned banks. I mean, we at least have central bank and some smaller locally owned banks, but uh, that is really kind of the t- determinant for many cities. And and at kind of a level or two above that, you see a lot of this kind of concern, and even in cities like Atlanta or Philadelphia, because they don't have the corporate headquarters they used to. You know, Louisville has got more than we do, but Lexington is in this tier of cities, along with Charlottesville and some others that uh, you know are not going to have huge economic engines unless they uh, unless something you know, miraculous happens. We were lucky to get Toyota in the 80s. You know, our biggest strength here is is education and health care. You know, because we have the University of Kentucky, we have Transylvania, other universities, we have the huge medical complex. We're a regional medical center. 
So those are kind of the economic engines that are really kind of keep Lexington uh, moving along with a unique agriculture industry, the horse farms. Uh, and now hemp? And now hemp. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of remains to be seen what uh, hemp uh, will be in terms of an economic engine. You know, for many years it was fiber and, and the big, it was all about, in fact, Henry Clay basically getting the contract for the U.S. Navy to buy hemp from Kentucky to make ropes for riggings for sailing ships. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was the big thing, and mm-hmm. steamships kind of put a big dent in that. Now, though, it's it's about all about the oils mm-hmm. and the CDB, you know, mm-hmm. the, the chemical ways that hemp can be used. So that remains to be seen. But it's going to be, you know, it's going to be trying to figure out, like a lot of communities, what are our strengths and how can we make the most of them, you know, in terms of our history, our culture, bourbon, horses, education, healthcare, those are the things that are, and quality of life, uh, that are going to, I think, drive Lexington's future and, and what kind of local leadership, you know, we have. I think, you know, we've got uh, a talented mayor now, Jim Gray was a, a terrific mayor. We've had, we've had some, you know, some, some pretty good leadership and I think that's going to be key as well. Tom Ebelin, uh, it's been a, a joy to be with you. Um, it, it doesn't appear that you're anywhere close to retirement uh, to me. We, we, maybe you don't even use the R word, but Tom has left the uh, Herald-Leader, as we mentioned, and now is doing a variety of things, uh, including being a member of our uh, Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Uh, thanks a lot for making time for us. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. Good to talk with you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.